So a brief, uh, a brief word before I get going about why I am wearing this non-standard garb. This truly. Um, so last week, the Washington Redskins played the New York Giants in, well, no, the New York Giants played football last week, and a local high school team from New Jersey wore Redskins jerseys. Um, and going into the game, uh, Peter and John are both Giants fans, and I am a Redskins fan. So I said, hey, how about we make this game a little interesting since neither of our teams are making the playoffs. Um, <laughs> if, uh, if the Redskins win, you all wear Redskins jerseys next week. If the Giants win, I'll wear a Giants jersey. And here we are. <laughs> the United Methodist Church is right. Don't gamble, kids. <laughs> The past two weeks, we have been grappling with a question that can often consume us, often cut us to our core. Am I enough? This question strikes us quite literally as a deeply personal one. It gets us in our guts, and it's sparked in the part of our mind that we can't seem to get control over. It's the driver of our hustle. And it causes us to doubt the most fundamental thing. Does God really love me? Am I enough for God? Or is God tired of me? Is God tired of me not getting it, not getting how to follow God back? I've been reading a lot of Brene Brown recently. And not just because we're having a Daring Greatly book club on Wednesday, although that was a not-so-shameless plug. And not just as a resource for these sermons. But because so much of her writing has resonated with my own hopes and fears, my own yearnings and my own anxieties, her writing comes as a response to her research on shame. She saw the power and impact shame has on us, how it takes root, and how we respond to it, and then she asked the question, what about the resilient? What about the people who are able to overcome shame? She calls these people the wholehearted. And she says that what the wholehearted have in common is they have a deep sense, they hold fast to, they know deep down that they are worthy. Worthy of love. Worthy of good things. That in themselves, they are enough. Now a question. What do you think God has to do with living wholehearted? Brene Brown talks about the wholehearted having an innate sense of worth. But as a pastor, I don't think that comes from simply inner strength. I tend to think it comes from something that God has imputed and imparted to us. Even if we might not acknowledge it being imputed and imparted from God. But for now, for today, I want us to look at this question as having its root, its source, in where we stand before God. And to do that, I want us to look at the 8th chapter of Romans. Like literally the 8th chapter. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's Paul's thesis statement for this chapter, so I'm going to repeat it. Because Paul's going to have a lot of other words, friends. So, remember this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life 
has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may share in his glory. Friends, that's the first half of the letter. So I'm going to break in, and let's talk about what's going on here. Earlier in Paul's letter to the Romans, he's talked about how all of us sin and fall short. He says that the Israelites were given the law to reveal their inability to live up to God's standards of righteousness. And those of us who aren't Israelites, well, we have our own ways of revealing how we don't live up to par. And over and over again, Paul keeps talking about how, keeps talking about the law and how the law enslaves us. And here's why. Because we get so caught up in trying to live up to the law, we get so caught up in trying to live up to meet this impossible standard. And he resumes a lot of these themes here. For Israelites, adherence to the law was the way you could save yourself. It's the way you could justify yourself. It's the way that you could be worthy before others and before God. The way that you could feel enough. Now, Torah doesn't serve that purpose for us. But a lot of other things do. There's something. There's something that if you could do well, it would justify you. That would make you feel worthy. That would make you feel good. And not just feel good. That you believe would make you good. There's some obsession that you have that, if you, that you think if you were just good at this one thing, you'd be worthy of your existence. And if you could meet that bar, all the worry, all the anxiety would be gone. We all have our own version of the law. What is it for you? 
What is the thing that if you were good enough at this, you would be worthy? See, that's what Paul means by living according to the flesh. Living according to our own ability to save ourselves. Our own ability to justify ourselves. Our own ability to make ourselves worthy. And what Paul is saying here is that we can't do it. We can't make ourselves feel lovable. We can't make ourselves feel worthy. Deep down, we'll never be assured of our own goodness so long as we are relying on our own version of the law to give us that salvation. No, Paul isn't saying salvation's impossible, though. It's not impossible. Paul isn't saying we can't ever feel worthy, feel good, feel lovable, feel enough. Paul's saying we can't get there by our own means. Instead, God sent Jesus to die, to die our death. God sent Jesus to die to our sin. God sent Jesus to fulfill the law and die, which reveals the law's powerlessness. The law can't save us. If it can't save Christ, it can't save us. But God raised Jesus from the dead as another sign to us, a sign that God alone has the power to save. This is Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. And we are saved when, in Paul's words, we die to the flesh and live by the Spirit. We are saved when we put down our own version of the law. When we put down whatever measuring stick you think makes you worthy, makes you lovable. Because it won't ever do what you want it to do. And when you put that down, when you stop trying to fill yourself up with something that won't satisfy, that's where you'll experience the gift that God has been longing to give you. The gift God sent Jesus into the world to give us all. Love. Those who die to the flesh, says Paul, those who put down the things they think will save them, will hear God call them child and will respond by calling God Papa. But that's not where Paul ends because that's not where it ends for us. That's not our experience of the gospel. Paul continues, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjugated to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirits groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Oh, I need to remember that in about three hours. <laughs> Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. 
And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Quick little aside. I hear people sometimes say, I don't know how to pray because I don't know what to pray for. I don't know how to pray because I don't know what to do. This is your hope. The Spirit's praying for you. So sometimes if you just do it, you can join in with what the Spirit's doing. So you don't have to master it to do it. The Spirit's already doing it for you. You just got to hop along for the ride. Back to your regularly scheduled sermon. But I do love this section of Romans 8. There's a lot of groaning going on. But I love what Paul is getting at here. Because in the first section, he seems to make it so simple. Just stop, live according to the flesh, and start living by the Spirit. Just put down the thing you think will save you, and embrace God's offer of salvation, and it'll be great. Except it's not always. It's not always that great. It's not always that simple. There's stuff that needs to be worked out in each and every one of us. There are times when we don't feel that love. There are times when we want to pick up that thing we thought would save us again. Because faith is tough. Living by the Spirit is tough. Believing in God's love is tough. Because it's out of our control. And when life gets messy, what do we want more than anything else? Control. Control is clean. I can control my actions to a certain extent. If I'm justifying myself, then I'm, I, I feel much more in control. Faith is messy. It's relying on someone else. That's harder. So there's this groaning. Because we are caught in this middle place between trying to save ourselves and believing that God has saved us. Or put another way, we are caught in this middle place between believing that we are lovable, believing we are enough, believing we are worthy, and also trying to prove our own worthiness. Trying to prove that we should or could be loved. And that dissonance, that's a groan. Here's the truth, though. Here's the gospel truth. It's how Paul finishes the chapter. It's what comes after the groan. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, 
Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Nothing. Nothing. Not one thing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. That's our gospel. That's the truth. For those of us who don't know if we are worthy of love, for those of us who strive daily to prove our worth, for those of us who think that if we were a good parent, a good spouse, a good child, good at my job, then and only then will we be worthy, then we will be lovable, then we will be loved, then we will be enough. This is our gospel. When we aren't a good parent, when we aren't a good spouse, when we aren't a good child, when we fail at our jobs, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There isn't anything we can do to prove our love. There isn't anything we can do to lose that love. There's nothing, nothing separates us from God's love. Can I get an amen? amen. We are loved. Whether we like it or not, whether we can explain it or understand it or not, whether we feel it or not, we are loved by God in Christ Jesus. Always, forever, no strings attached. Amen. That's worth clapping about. So I started today with an assertion that the question, am I enough, is really about, am I enough for God? Does God really love me? And here's the amazingly simple answer. Yes, he does. The better question is, do you believe it? Or put another way, where are you in Romans 8? See, I see three distinct movements in Romans 8. There's Paul trying to tell people to put down their measuring stick and know that God loves them. Then there's Paul talking about the groans of living in between knowing God loves us and having that fully realized. And then there's Paul talking about nothing separating us from the love of God. Where are you? Are you clinging to the measuring stick, believing it's the only thing that can save you, the only thing that can make you worthy of God's love? Are you in the groans, knowing that you are only saved by putting down the measuring stick and accepting God's love, and yet still finding comfort in the measuring stick, still longing for control that the measuring stick offers? Or do you know deep in your bones that nothing can separate you from God's love and are living in the freedom that brings? Where are you in Romans 8? If I'm honest, I'm in the groans. See, I, I know that God loves me. But man, that measuring stick is comfortable. Man, do sometimes I think it's easier to try and do it on my own. And I have to be reminded daily to put it down and to embrace the freedom of God's love. Where are you? Wherever you are, I invite you to come to the table today. Because in communion, we are reminded of God's love and God's unconditional love in and through Jesus Christ. Freely offered, no matter where we are. God loves you, and that love is made present in communion.
Because in communion, we remember on the night in which Christ gave himself up for us, he took bread, gave thanks to God, gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup, gave, it to his, uh, gave thanks to God, gave it to his disciples and said, this is my blood of a new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We remember that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We remember that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, proving God's power over sin, death, and the, the punishment that the law puts on us. And we come to the table invited by Christ as a sure hope that the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will raise us to life as well. Let us pray.